If Jesus is male, how do women fit in the incarnation? And if Jesus is the high priest, as it says in the book of Hebrews, what does that really mean? Today's guest is Dr. Amy Peeler, professor at Wheaton College, and we talk about her dissertation on the book of Hebrews and her new book, Women and the Gender of God. Thanks for tuning in. This is Young and Sanctified. I'm Justin. And if you have a moment today, please leave a review and share it with a friend. All right, let's go. Well, I'm, I'm really excited and kind of nervous to be talking to Dr. Amy Peeler today. She's a, a phenomenal scholar, phenomenal thinker, and I'm just really grateful to have her on the show today. Welcome. Justin, it's a pleasure to be here. I really look forward to our conversation. Yeah. So as I've been studying Christology on my own, on my own but also in grad school, I have a almost like a proclivity to lean towards Hebrews. I don't know why. I think it's just if, if I get a PhD, if I seek it, it would be on that book. And so when I came across your both your dissertation and your new book, um, Women and the Gender of God, uh, I was just blown away. And so before we dive in, can you just share briefly why Hebrews? Why is that such, so important to you? Yeah. Oh, I love hearing. And I think, I know I'm biased because I spend a lot of time in this book, but I think it could be demonstrated that the early church had the proclivity that you've just named, <laughs> that this book was so important as they are seeking you know, God on the identity of Christ. Uh, Hebrews mm. gives so much in that regard. And so this book I was drawn to initially for the warnings. Uh, maybe you've heard me share that before, but I think those are really intense passages about sin. But yet those are those warnings are embedded within God's grace. And mm. so Hebrews is this incredible gift of a juxtaposition of holiness, and yet we can approach God, of mm. that Christ is fully the eternal Son and absolutely in every way human, body and emotions included. So paradox that sit next to one another in Christian faith, many of them are both demonstrated in Hebrews. And so it's been such a rich resource for all of the doctrinal theological questions of the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really like this book because when, when we consider it in light of the Gospels, it's completely unique. No other God, no gospel mentions, you know, a high priestly Christology right. and Melchizedek. So I'm really excited to dig in a little bit more. So I, in your book, you are my, which is also, the, I think, the published version of your dissertation, correct? You are my son. It's this. That's right. You assert that there's this father son dynamic between between Jesus and God, and that it's crucial for the letter. So can you elaborate on this a little bit? Oh, glad to. So the first. One thing that's very striking about Hebrews, and while it is very resonant with the theology that we find in all the other places, at both Israel's scriptures and the New Testament, there are distinctives to Hebrews. And one of them is the degree to which it cites the Old Testament and the way in which it does so, namely as God's speech. And mm. all as whereas Paul has a tendency to say it is written, right? And he has a lot to draw from a lot in Isaiah and the Psalms. Uh, he presents those as written documents. That's not a bad thing. That That's wonderful. But Hebrews distinctively always introduces Israel's scriptures as God says, or the Holy Spirit mm. says, or Jesus says. It is spoken. It's this emphasis on hearing that goes throughout the book. 
Well, the first thing that you hear from God in Hebrews is the statement, You are my son. I will be a father him. Today I have begotten. And so when I was initially doing my work, I was very interested in rhetoric. I was interested in the character of a speaker that's communicated through the speech given. And my dissertation advisor had me say, go and look at all the speeches of God. What kind of character of God is being conveyed? And it kind of leapt off the page to me that the first point that we learn about God is that God is Father in relationship with the Son. And that's not the only thing said about God, but I really wanted to pay attention to the way in which that is fronted. In Hebrews, God is only called Father twice there, and then God is referred to as a Father explicitly in chapter 12, where the author is saying, God is your Father, and all the things you're going through you're actually experiencing the loving discipline of God. And so in Hebrew scholarship, those two mentions had been a reason for people to say, this theme doesn't really matter. And that's a good space for a dissertation, right? Like I find a gap where people say something isn't important and I'll see if that's correct or not. But what struck me is that while God is called Father those two places, then you have mention of Jesus as son in really important places. Of course, that's the focus of chapter one in Hebrews. But even when you go into the introduction of his priesthood in chapter five, the first thing the author does is to remind the listeners, hey, this priest is the same one to whom God said, you are my son. He, he invokes that citation again. So that almost forms as the identity basis then for Jesus's priesthood. You have the repetition of sonship really throughout him sitting at the throne at the right hand of God as the son of God. And you also have themes of inheritance that flow throughout, education that flow throughout. These are things that are within the arena of the family. And so it struck me that this theme is actually more pervasive than maybe first recognized, because if you just do a word search, it doesn't come up very much. But again, mm. if you do it thematically, it's quite prominent. But you ask a more important question, why does this matter? I think what the author of Hebrews is trying to do in this sermon is to re-inspire the trust of this audience. We know they're mm. persecuted. We know they're likely facing more persecution. I think they find themselves in a time in which they're saying, hey, look, there's a lot of bad around us. And we're kind of wondering, where is this God that we've mm. heard about or that we've trusted previously? And so if the aim of this letter is to get them to trust God, faith, as, as displayed in chapter 11, I think a vital way the author does that is to say, look at this relationship between the eternal father and the eternal son. God mm. made promises to the son. You will reign over all things. All things will be put under your feet. Um, see the way in which God has brought those promises to fruition. And if you can trust that relationship then by virtue of the fact that you've confessed Christ as Son of God, as Messiah, you're going to be caught up into the same relationship and so that you can trust that mm -hmm. God will be a good father to you as God has been to the mm -hmm. Son. And so mm -hmm. it, it acts as a theological and Christological reason to inspire their faith. Oh, interesting. So do you think the original audience, were they conceiving Jesus as divine or, or were they fully there yet or how, how are they managing this uh, yes. tension? That's such a wonderful question and you probably are well aware this is debated in Hebrew scholarship, right? The mm -hmm. way in which chapter one is interpreted. 
I have found most convincing that the author probably begins with a shared confession. It Hmm. does seem to be the way in which he's describing the sun. He is definitely evoking wisdom tradition, logos, kind of word of God tradition that we would find in other Jewish authors of the time, this aspect of God. And he's personalizing uh, Hmm. those, those dimensions of God's character much like John does, right? Logos, 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 the logos took on flesh. She's a person we hung around with. I think Hebrews is doing something very similar, you know, drawing from kind of wisdom traditions and saying, yeah, it's the person we know, Jesus, who walked Mm. among us and we heard his gospel from others. So I believe that they have made a confession about Jesus as King Messiah, and I believe they've made a confession of him as Son of God Now, they wouldn't be able to give all the precision of definition that you're going to get by Nicaea, but I think that baseline confession is there. So I find Mm. especially early in my work, Richard Bauckham's Jesus and the God of Israel, he has several essays on Hebrews. Those to me were quite convincing that this Mm -hmm. community had already gotten to the place of worship of Jesus in the same way that they are worshiping the God of Israel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. So another part that is prominent both in your book um, and in the book of Hebrews is Jesus is high priest. Yes. And the connection uh, connection between um, Mel- Melchizedek, I think I'm pronouncing it right. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, and, and you also talk about how it shapes the audience's understanding of their own inheritance right. and salvation. So can you elaborate on that? Sure, sure. No, that's a good thing to name. You know, I had a, a former colleague, he's gone on to a different institution, Nick Perrin, who has some really mm. superb work on cultic connotations in the Gospels, Jesus as priest or Jesus as temple. I think he does a very persuasive job to say this is an undercurrent in the mm. Gospel narratives, but it is definitely the case that it's only Hebrews who names these things explicitly. This is one place at which I see this author in communication with Paul, but it's not Paul. Paul will kind of allude to Hilasterion, the mercy seat. Like We see Mm. these kind of glimmers. I've always thought of this author as someone who's hanging out with Paul and listening and then says, you know, the cult, the sacrifice, that's kind of a big deal. In, in Judaism, maybe we should think a little bit more about how we learn about God through that and how Jesus fits into that. And so, hmm. hence, you get Hebrews. Uh, so, Jesus' priesthood is lifted up here. I mean, really, you have a glimmer of it at the very beginning. He's the one who made purification for sins. And then you get a mention, he's the sympathetic high priest, merciful and righteous high priest, uh, that he can understand our weaknesses. So what does that mean for how the audience is led to trust God? And, oh, oh, and Melchizedek, love chapter (laughs) 7. It's one of my favorite parts of Hebrews. It's an enigmatic figure. Other Jews are interested in him. But I think Mm -hmm. he discovers in that story, you know, Jesus as priest, this would have been a hard claim to make, actually, because there was a hesitancy in Israel to have the king and the priest as the same person. It's definitely the case Hmm. that David at times will do priestly acts, but you have Zadok. And of course, Moses is such an important leader, but you have Aaron as the first high priest. There's a differentiation of that power. And what this author is saying is that Jesus is absolutely king, right? He's the descent of David, and he's also priest. There's kind of an uphill battle to climb there, maybe with his Mm -hmm. listeners, because he's saying something that at least explicitly nobody else is saying. 
and he's putting together concepts that are often held apart. Mm-hmm. And so for him to be able to say this, he turns to Melchizedek, who is also, lo and behold, a king and priest in Israel's scriptures, <laughs> who has this relationship with God Most High, even, we don't know where this started, but it's at the same time as Abraham, time, same time the covenant is getting going. That allows him to say, I know I'm making these claims about Jesus's priesthood that may sound new to your ears, but I want to show you, even all the way back to Genesis, God has already been planning, always been planning, for there to be a different and even superior priesthood to that of the Levitical priesthood. And we can see that in Melchizedek. That is not a way in which he is being derogatory of the Levitical priesthood. I think that's really important to name. I believe he sees that functioning of the priest in Israel as a blessing from God, a way to maintain relationship between a holy God and an unholy people, and as a signpost pointing to what Jesus will do so people can understand his salvific work. So that plays a very important role, but always Jesus's priesthood has been superior. So then that allows them to say, you know, we have a representative before God. I think this is one aspect that may be challenging for modern readers, Mm -hmm. because no matter kind of what church structure we're a part of, we have a sense that like our pastor will pray for us or our priest kind of intermediates for us, then we know that that person does that because Jesus does that for us, right? He is the mediator between God and humanity. Mm-hmm. I like to try to recapture how fresh that would have been for this audience, mm-hmm. right? That you have someone standing in the gap who not only is representing you fully as a human, who has experienced the human condition, but who has come from and been sent from God eternally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so truly uh, breaks the divide that has entered in because of sin between God and humanity. So what mm-hmm. is maybe quite normal for us, I think would have been incredibly fresh and incredibly inspiring for the endurance of this community. Hmm. Yeah, I, I actually came across this debate, I, I won't remember who, the scholarly debate in articles um, over on whether or not Jesus is constantly interceding or whether oh, it was like a one-time thing. Huh. Um, so, I mean, have you looked into that or have you studied oh, that at all? Yeah, that is such a great question. And it, it really does go back to 725 to 28, kind of that paragraph there. Mm-hmm. He's living to make intercession. Um, and so, at which I think this is a place also we could bring in Paul's conversations in Romans 8, where Jesus is also interceding. Romans 8, mm-hmm. yeah, and the, and the Spirit as well. Um, I think the communication, the advocacy of the Son to the Father is a perpetual. I think also of Hebrews 4, approach the throne of grace so that you might hmm. find mercy and grace to help in the time of need. Hmm. That's like... God is being responsive and open to the prayers wherever you find yourself. Of Mm. course, we get into the complicated reality that God is above time, (laughs) but yet the son having entered into time and taken on a human body, I think it's, I'm more persuaded that this is a uh, frequent, perpetual intercession. And moreover, I'm very influenced by the work of my friend, David Moffat, who has really Mm. convinced me that the body of Christ there before the Father is a perpetual reminder 
of the resurrection, of the defeat of sin and death. Mm. And therefore, where whether or not the son is, you know, voicing prayers constantly, his presence before the face of God, as it, as it says mm-hmm. several times in Hebrews, is a reminder of that advocacy. Mm. So, yes, mm. I think it... He presents his offering once, right? One sacrifice for and sin forever, but then <laughs> remains before the face of God forever. And so that advocacy mm. continues. And oh, therefore, we have access to it whenever we need. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Man, I just have to chew on that for a sec because, you know, it's in, uh, you offer also a good point that I think people can get lost just in the scholarship debates mm-hmm. and forget that, you know... I, so who called him a pastor? I think so isn't there an author that just calls him a pastor? Or yeah, the author a pastor? There there are several probably. I know Robert Wall is someone I really respect who's worked on Hebrews and he will frequently refer to the author as the pastor. And I think that's fitting. Uh whomever this is has a really passionate, caring relationship for this community. Hmm. Yeah, well I, I only bring that up because hearing you talk about it. And the author, I can tell that there's this like passion for the audience. It's not necessarily, you know, academic debates. It's it's a for the audience for sure. Hmm. So before we move on to your, well, I'm just repeating what you said. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to go on to your second book a little bit. Before we do, is there any any important pieces of the Hebrews Christology that you think we missed? That, that you think you would want the listeners to hear? Maybe what's jumping off to me, as I especially have been recently re-studying the chapter on faith, is that the author is not asking this community, and therefore I would say the Holy Spirit is not asking any contemporary reader, a reader from any era, to have kind of a blind trust in mm. God. Hey, God is good. You better trust it, right? Yeah. Just, just go with it. The Son coming and becoming human and sitting on the right hand of God. And the author says, we don't see all things as they should be, to mm-hmm. 8 through 10, but we see Jesus. Now, we can't physically see him, but we do have a sense of his majesty. That is the tether of faith. Like, we really can. I've just been impressed so deeply in a new way. We mm-hmm. really can look back to his life as recorded in the scriptures, how his life has made an impact through time. And that's the basis for why we can keep trusting. So mm. Hebrews Christology is so incredibly tangible. Like, I love his emotive displays and his emphasis on blood and flesh and self. Mm-hmm. It is so real. And it's written for people who really need to hear that mm-hmm. this endurance is worth it. And they mm. can look back to what God has done in Christ for that. Hmm. You've, you've actually mentioned... Um, that there, you know, there was persecution and uh, and they needed to hear this message. Is there, what context could you give us briefly of that book? Yes, you know, and this is such the hard thing without an author, without a specific date or place, all kind of question marks. Um, yeah. What, the, the passage that I think about so often is 10, 32 through 34, where he says, you know, in the past, you had your stuff taken. And you suffered with those who were suffering and you were shamed. Mm. And then in 12, he said, you haven't yet fought against sin to the point of death. And that kind of leads me to wonder, is he anticipating possible martyrdom? 
Hmm. Uh, and and he said, visit those in prison in chapter 13. So some among their community have taken have had their freedom taken away. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of glimmers that we get. And it is the case in the scholarship. Like some have even wondered, are these general descriptions of any persecuted Christian? Uh, it seems to be the pathos that he has for this community. These are real people who have gone through these things. That's my conclusion. But whether that is happening in Rome at certain periods, some have said this is things that are going on in Jerusalem. I find the Roman context a bit more persuasive. So I I would have a hard time nailing down a lot of specifics, but I wonder if an, at least knowing that this community is persecuted allows us to make comparisons with places in our own world and maybe a Myself, I'm not persecuted, right? I'm an American Christian. I teach at an evangelical institution. I do not face persecution for my faith. In fact, I'm praised the more that I have faith. It is a good reminder for me that maybe Hebrews, uh, that I just need to be mindful of brothers and sisters who have a more direct connection with the likely experience of this book. Do I find deep encouragement in this Christology? Absolutely. But if I might say it this way, Whatever kind of stressors I might bring that I need mercy and grace for to help in my time of need, it's a good reminder that um, I also have a lot to be gracious for, (laughs) a lot to be thankful for. And there are others that might have more crisis level level survival issues that they would bring to this text. Yeah, that's that's a helpful insight. Of of you know the Christology that reaches both you know us and and the Midwest America, but also those in, in, you know, who are suffering. Right, right, Hmm. right, right. So I don't mean to dismiss because I know people can bring, you know, you might have any number of things that are going on. Uh, Praise God. I love, especially, here's another thing I'd say of the Christology. In chapter four, very famous, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. I think that's a really important verse. I have been so deeply impressed how that sits next to then the passage about his Hmm. merciful... A high priesthood, because this you get a sense in at the, that section of chapter four, like God can see everything, the good, the bad. You're trying to keep anything hidden. You are exposed before God, and so in that place of vulnerability, isn't it mm. wonderful that God has become a high priest that is merciful to your weakness and does not, instead of condemning you, takes that condemnation mm. upon mm. himself. Uh, that has been a very incredibly powerful passage, no matter what anyone yeah, might yeah. bring to the text. Amen. <laughs> so your, first off, your your book, Women and the Gender of God, I think every seminary student, every lay person, every pastor needs to read it. it it's so thought-provoking because, I mean, I, I've, in, in, at least in college, I've heard people mention that, oh, Jesus chose to be a man. And so, you know, men is, manhood is important. So I'm really interested in this, some of your insight here. Um, and I'll have your both your books uh, linked in the show notes for listeners uh, to click on it real quick. But anyway, you, you, you mentioned that traditional Christology has often ignored or dismissed the particularity of Jesus's sex as unimportant. So can you speak to this a little bit and the impact it has on church and its understanding of women in ministry? Yes, yes. So these are complicated waters, but but sometimes there's always this tension, and, and you would know this well, your listeners would know this well, that 
God has become human to reconcile all of creation. And in so doing, God became a particular human being, a first century Jewish male, Hmm. Jesus of Nazareth. Right. So there's always this tension of the redemption of all things. And in this scandal of particularity, I love that phrase from theology of this one. And so by virtue of lots of different scholarly decisions and personal life uh, experiences, I really wanted to press into mm. his maleness. What, what does that mean? And so in some ways, it's, it is correct to say that a person does not have to share all of the particularities of Jesus, either to be redeemed by him or to be part of the Christian mm. community. Right? We can't, not all of us, most of us, I mean, many of us since the time of Paul's ministry aren't Jewish, right? We don't meet that qualification. Well, none of us are first century people. <laughs> uh, we're not, you know, we're not residents of Nazareth, right? So we're, we we fail in some regard. I have some discussion in my book that even his brothers, right? They would have a lot of data points to share with him, mm-hmm. but they're not him. And so none of us are exactly like Christ. That's clear, Okay. So I would never want to say that maleness is um, a necessity to be in relationship with Christ. But what I have realized or what I suggest in the book, that sometimes the assumption that his maleness communicates mm-hmm. something about God, uh, about the ways that Christian communities should be led and organized, I think there's sometimes not a clear understanding that that particularity sometimes does Mm. slip in as a qualification for the full honoring and the full participation of people. And hence women, um, not all, but but sometimes women have this question of, hey, Jesus is male and I'm female and I recognize that I'm different from Jesus in lots of other ways, but that's a pretty basic way that we organize the world. And so does that put me at a distance from Jesus? Mm. I think that's an okay question to ask. Like, that's not kind of like you shouldn't get your hand slapped if you ask that question. Like, that's an okay thing to ask. And in pressing into that question, it has been truly one of the greatest Mm -hmm. choice of my life to discover ways in which God's choice to manifest Mm -hmm. in that way as a human is an embrace Mm -hmm. of all people, male and female. to know um, how, how have people reconciled this recently or like not recently but in the past how have people reconciled God's maleness but uh, women and like what are some unhealthy ways that people have reconciled it you know it's really helpful to look at how previous generations of Christians have had these conversations the idea that men are superior is pretty widely baked in to philosophical discussions from way before Christianity. And there's been lots of good work. Kind of the Aristotelian notion that male, male bodies are usually bigger and stronger than female bodies. And so then the conclusion was, well, that means that men are superior in virtue mm-hmm. and superior in knowledge. 
now in a modern era, right, we and even going back for quite some time, people are, oh, of course not. Of course, we don't mean that. <laughs> but unfortunately, mm. our brothers and sisters of past eras, and maybe I should say, well, brothers and sisters, because you can find some derogatory comments of women against themselves. They kind of imbibed this idea, even though I believe that scripture and most people would believe that they also kind of mm. affirm totally Imago Dei. All people bear the image of God, but they were infected by this misogyny <laughs> for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And so you see discussions of, well, of course, Eve caused sin and was tempted because women are just more sinful. Well, everybody knows mm. that. Things that no one would articulate today were fairly prominent, even up until you can find some really damning things said by the reformers that no one would embrace now. So that, I think, is a pretty mm -hmm. clear manifestation of uh, a smudging together of Jesus's particularity mm. of his maleness to then say, well, that means that's clearly God came as a male because males are just better. And so they're all male are better than women. So that would be the most extreme form, mm -hmm. which, again, listeners may be like, well, that's ridiculous. But I promise if you go to the data, you can find a lot of early Christians saying that <laughs> in previous eras. So that's something we would want to avoid. And, and not just because mm -hmm. we are moderns and we are influenced by feminism, but because that flies in the face of the truth of what God tells us on the first pages of Scripture. And so this is a way, way all generations are fallen. Mm -hmm. We're all infected with misunderstandings. But sometimes we can't see those of our own time, but we can look back and see, oh, that's when they messed up. And we refer return to scripture to come back to truth. So I made the statement then. That, so that seems to be an unhealthy way. It's important for me to name. If anyone looks at me up in five seconds, they can discover what I believe about women in ministry. I believe that God can call women to all forms of ministry. But I am respectful of Christian brothers and sisters who have made different decisions on that question. Mm. I believe they have plausible exegetical reasons for doing so. I believe their churches and communities can be blessed by the Holy Spirit and fruitful. So I do not mm. think that anyone who does not allow women to be in leadership are doing the kind of derogatory women aren't as valued. That is not at all what mm -hmm. I believe. I believe that those positions could be open to some dangers, which I lay out in the book, but those aren't necessities. Hmm. Uh, you can have fruitful and faithful uh, churches and homes in that uh, method by which men are leaders. The, the insidious kind of hidden reality that I discovered that still goes on today is that by virtue of Jesus's maleness, I still think there might be an assumption Really, if you think about it, men are more like God than women. And this is manifest in things like initiation. Uh, you know, God initiates. Mm. God's the one that gets salvation started. Hey, men should be initiators. They should be leaders. Oh, see that equation? Men are more like God. And this is what I seek to untangle a bit mm. because I do not think it's the case that in any and all situations, men must, by virtue of them, their male bodies, be initiators. Hence, that difference between God and humanity is not <laughs> a male-female kind of difference or even a masculine-feminine kind of difference. It is God is God, we are not. God is creator and we are creation. I would much mm. rather keep that infinite qualitative divide between humanity and God along those lines and not get them tangled up 
in the language of sex and gender, mm. by which I, I think it's we're not demanded to do so by scripture or the tradition. And it's really not helpful. Uh, both it, it brings God to the level of a creature. And unfortunately, it usually puts down women and lifts up men in such a way that either they can become prideful or they have this immense pressure. Oh, if I'm more like God, I better be like that. And, and that seems really detrimental for both men and women. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. The pressure, I think, hearing you say that, there definitely is a, a, a pressure to, you know, be that strong, right. you know, leader that the whole family can rely on. Right. But who, who holds the men, you know? Right. Right. <laughs> who and, who and takes care of us. Exactly. And there might be a man whose kind of natural proclivities are toward leadership and protection. And I yeah. celebrate that. That's amazing. But that's not all men. <laughs> and mm-hmm. nor do I think that it has to be all men. I, I think any kind of those gender stereotypes by which you should do something, um, I just don't see them in Scripture. There, there's ethics of yeah. all of us to glorify God and be faithful. But those, I've, I don't see any differentiation between how men and women follow Jesus faithfully. We all take mm-hmm. up our cross. Mm-hmm. Amen. And and I don't know I don't know if I, I don't think I mentioned it earlier my my faith background is the Salvation Army and yeah and we we praise ourselves for being egalitarian you know from the beginning but I think just hearing you talk like there definitely is this still this undertone of there's something just a little bit more important in in males you know if you look at our highest ranking uh, positions they're all male right zero women so fascinating things. So what's what's the way forward then? How are we supposed to see male and female in the incarnation? Right. No, thank you. I had kind of started moving in that direction, so thanks for calling me back. What is beautiful, it seems to me, about the way that salvation happened, right? We can never know the mind of God. God could have, God didn't have to save us at all, right? God, mm-hmm. Father, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, uh, totally uh, sufficient and a community of love, But God said, I'm not going to abandon humanity. And then when God made that decision, God could have done that in any way, so desired. But God said, I'm going to enter in, and I'm going to enter into the full human condition, including conception and birth, all the way to the point of death. Hmm. And when God did so, God came as a male. And the way in which this happens, here's the point at which this was new and fresh for me. Maybe I think it's in other authors, there are glimmers of it, but I hadn't reflected on it. I ascribed to virginal conception, right? I think Mary was a virgin, and I think miraculously God caused Jesus' birth. Most Orthodox Mm -hmm. Christians would assent to that. But when you really start thinking about the implications of that, I think it's quite amazing. Jesus Mm. is male, which I affirm. All the New Testament authors, male body, kind of no questions on that. But where did he get that body from? Mary. Mary alone. Hmm. Right? The work of the Holy Spirit who overshadows her, who cultivates from her flesh to make Hmm. his flesh. And so then Jesus becomes absolutely unparalleled, of course, by the virtue of the fact that he is the Son of God incarnate. But even in the way in which his humanity comes to be, There is an embrace and inclusion of maleness because he is male, and yet his humanity comes solely from a woman. And Mm. that is quite powerful, it seems to me. And that is where I've pressed into 
in the incarnate body, I am more able to see my invitation there. Now, we are all part mm. of Christ, right? This is a spiritual, we're caught up into union with him. That's amazing. But Christianity is not just at the level of spiritual, or right? It is mm -hmm. an embodied faith. And that his body has this inclusion as well feels very in line with how God chose to come and that our faith mm. is meant to be an embodied one. Then we can play out the implications. In my book, I open up the topics of who gets to celebrate the Lord's Supper? Well, if Mary was caring for the body of God, God's kind of already made a decision on if women can handle this body and blood. And God mm. said, yes. Uh, in, in all respect to maybe Catholic and Orthodox brothers and sisters, maybe there are different ways. I know there are different ways of making that argument for a male-only priesthood. But I think the argument that, well, Jesus is male and only males can represent him, that does not mm -hmm. seem to hold up, in my opinion, because mm -hmm. he's absolutely yeah. male, but he's not just like you because you had a father <laughs> and a mother. Uh, you had a mother mm -hmm. and a father, and he only had a mother, a uh, mm -hmm. human mother. And so there's a difference. Uh, and and then her her presence there with his body, I think, speaks to that. And then, of course, she goes on to do lots of different forms of ministry uh, by God's invitation and empowerment. So there is a way in which my Savior represents and has paid for my salvation. He's fully human, but that his embodiment is in this unique way is incredibly empowering for women, it mm. seems to me. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Th that's what I found so compelling about your argument, because I think, in my unprofessional opinion, a lot of evangelicals kind of avoid Mary altogether, just to, you know, right? avoid any idolization or veneration oh, or yes. whatever it is. So you, you, yeah, you think you introduced such an important role Herod. of the incarnation as through Mary. And, you know, there's history, like there's reasons why Protestants have been hesitant. Um, yeah. I have uh, as students from other parts of the world who will say, you know, there are places where Mary is worshipped and God is not worshipped. So there are some dangers mm. there to be aware of. But, but the low kind of Protestant church, like total ignoring her, I don't think that's what God des would desire for us because God said, hey, this is how I've chosen to come. And if you don't pay mm. attention to that full story, we will miss out on things. I think our yeah. debates in evangelicalism, complementarian, egalitarian, uh, those are important conversations to have. But, but I, I say in the book, like we're just hamstrung from the beginning if we don't also mm. talk about the incarnation. Like, we're never going to solve this, no matter how many debates we have about First Timothy 2. We're just not going to get there <laughs> because we each have our exegetical mountains. And I don't know that Mary will all bring us to happiness, wonder, agreement on everything, but it absolutely has to be a part of the conversation. And Protestants have missed out on that, I think. So in like, I think it was the 18th century, or the 1800s at least, um, when, whenever the Catholic church like announced like uh, yes, mary's the dogma yeah the, right like the sinlessness of mary right right perpetual virginity yeah yeah, yeah. so how, does that play a role in this issue or like mary yes. and our view of women and, and gender oh that's a wonderful question absolutely so you know there are conversations about mary's sinlessness really going way mm -hmm. back this is formalized in in catholic 
doctrine in the mid-1800s, yeah. and then her assumption is formalized in doctrine dogma in the mid-1900s. Um, and, and those are decisions that actually end up kind of drawing a line in the sand, not only between Catholics and Protestants, but also with the Orthodox, who have different ways of mm -hmm. thinking about these things. My own position on, on those questions is that I can see how Catholic position gets there from the text. There's so actual little said about Mary. Now, I think there's enough to explore for a lifetime, <laughs> but we aren't given every detail. And so in that, in that kind of um, brief presentation of the text, you can build a logic that gets hmm. to her sinlessness. And it's all by God's mm -hmm. grace. They would say that God's grace so captured her before her birth um, and then so captured her at her death. So they're not kind of praising her. They're praising God's grace. I can see how you get there. But I don't think Scripture demands that of us. I, I think Protestants also can say, yeah, the New Testament doesn't tell us we have to think mm. that. And moreover, I think it does raise some real problems with how we think about, well, maybe Mary was set apart and she's so perfect and sinless and God did this work for her that God has done with no one else. And so then somewhat, sometimes what ends up happening, this is actually well documented by Catholic scholars, especially Catholic feminist scholars. I'm thinking of Elizabeth Johnson, mm. Maria Warner, who's more of a journalist, but wrote a big book on Mary alone of all her mm. sex. They'll say Mary gets so elevated that it doesn't matter what God does with her. It doesn't matter because it doesn't apply to anybody else. And so you can have a situation in which the Catholic Church in some spaces has so much praise of Mary. But then non-Mary women, like everybody else, not only are women not allowed to be priests, but even like little girls can't be acolytes. Mm. Like there are no female presence. And maybe someone could explain to me why that's the case. It, it does not make sense to me. Because if the if the limitation is for the priesthood alone, then why would we not let little girls carry the candles? Mm. And maybe that's different in different Catholic churches. But what you have is like an absence of feminine presence, mm. but this praise of Mary. There's a disjunct there, it seems to me. And so that's not the necessity of those doctrines, but it is a manifestation or it is a kind of result, I think, that could be traced back to those doctrines that she's so far removed from everyone mm. else. Mm. Interesting. Because I got to be honest, when I was reading a lot of your book, that's what came to mind is my own like pejorative inclination to see Mary that way. You know, it's like, you know, like a almost visceral reaction of anti-Mary yeah. uh, thinking. Of course. So that's fascinating. Yeah. And it was very refreshing, though, to, to see Mary just in a new way of, of not in a icky or sticky mm -hmm. way, I guess, in a way to put it, but... Right. In right. a way that's helpful. And the great joy of that, and we often have both Protestant and Catholic students. Uh, I teach a class on Mary with my dear art historian friend, Matt mm. Milliner. And when we just all come around the text, and I gave an early paper on Mary at Notre Dame, which is kind of interesting, like a Protestant in a very Catholic space. But my simple invitation was, hey, let's all gather around her story mm. again. And there's such richness here. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to us through these texts. We confess this as God's word. What could we discover together? And now we're still going to have some disagreements. We might not be able to go to church together on Sundays. We don't come around the table, which is a great grief. But we can learn more about her story. Mm. And I've had students who also do the same in Muslim communities because mm. Muslims have an entire book on Mary in the Quran. Mm -hmm. And she can be a bridge. She can be a place of meeting 
even if we still have disagreements, we can come to a deeper appreciation of of God's grace mm. to us and becoming human through her. Mm-hmm. Amen. That sounds like a really cool idea, uh, the conversations. Well, Dr. Peeler, I know you have to get going soon, so I do really appreciate your time and your expertise and just your heart for uh, believers. I, I can sense like a very pastoral, caring heart behind your scholarship. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, my only hope is whether people agree or disagree, that they might go back and sit at the feet of Scripture itself and and hear what God has to say. Yeah, that's my hope. You've just listened to another episode of Young and Sanctified. You can support us by continuing to listen, sharing an episode with a friend, or leaving a review. Find us on Instagram or Facebook. And if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can reach out to Justin personally through his email which you can find in the show notes. Your feedback helps us grow as a podcast. Until next time, friends.